Good to see everybody. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 16. Now we uh, have entered into chapter 16 in our study of the book of Revelation. And um, as just a, just a reminder, though, in this chapter, the final judgments of God, known as the seven bold judgments, are being poured out. As we have studied this, we've already entered into it. So we have watched these bowls being poured out upon this Christ-rejecting world. This will take place in the last half of the tribulation period, that time known as the Great Tribulation Period, and uh, probably near the end of that. Uh, as I said, these judgments are the most... Um, well, powerful, uh, cataclysmic of any of the judgments that God has poured out up until this point. So you can't you know, drag it out. The Lord's not going to drag it out. The world would not make it. Jesus said, unless those days be shortened, no flesh would remain upon the earth. So God is now pouring out his final judgments upon this world uh, in the future, of course. But Everyone who is going to be saved has gotten saved. That's why these judgments are not, uh, are not prolonged. In the beginning of the seven-year period, God brought some judgments back off and gave people time to think about it, to repent. Many did, or many will, I should say. Um, but by this point now, we're just probably, I don't know, if we're even a couple of years from the Lord Jesus' return. I don't know, but... These judgments are going to be happening at the end of the seven years, all right? Everyone who is going to be saved has gotten saved, and so all that is left are what the Bible calls the earth dwellers. These are the most hard-hearted, the most anti-God, well, anti-God of the Bible. They're going to worship the Antichrist as God. But um, they are the earth dwellers in the sense that this is their home. As opposed to us who are redeemed, we are sojourners and pilgrims. This is not our home. We're passing through, right? Uh, you know, so, um, but um, the events of chapter 16 are going to lead up then to the return of Christ to the earth, the battle of Armageddon, and the establishment of the kingdom. So just very quickly, we've already looked at the first five bull judgments. I'm just going to read them. Uh, the first bowl we saw uh, when it was poured out, we saw that malignant sores um, came upon the bodies of the Antichrist followers, those that took the mark and worshipped the Antichrist. That's verses 1 and 2. Malignant sores. And by the way, they didn't go away. They, they, they stayed. So these are cumulative, you know. It's not like a judgment poured out and then, you know, after a while it goes away. They just hang around and just add to each other, okay? Second bowl, we saw the oceans and saltwater seas turn to blood, verse 3. The third bowl, we saw the fresh waters on the earth turn to blood, verses 4 through 7. Uh, when the angel pours out the judgment upon the oceans and seas, it says every living thing in the oceans and seas on planet earth died. The fresh waters the same way, but when they were turned, uh, will be turned to blood. There'll be nobody, uh, there'll be no, nothing to drink, basically. 
the fourth bowl, uh, we saw as we studied that, that um, the angel pours out this bowl on the sun and it becomes, I don't know, maybe like goes into a supernova condition. It becomes very, very hot, extremely hot, burning people upon the earth, scorching them. That's verses uh, 8 and 9. And the fifth bowl, when the angel pours out this bowl, it causes darkness, uh, a, um, a darkness that has a almost like a physical property to it. Uh, like when God brought the plague of darkness upon Egypt, it was a darkness that could be felt. Not like an ordinary turn off the lights darkness. This is going to be have some kind of a physical property where it will smother uh, people um, and cause pain. Now, As you read about that judgment, verses 10 and 11, it makes it a point, the Holy Spirit does, working through John, to say that um, this darkness and all and the pain that comes along with it uh, is going to be poured out on the Antichrist's throne and upon his followers. I get the impression that God's people, those who are alive, uh, who have uh, taken refuge somewhere hidden from the Antichrist, uh, it, uh, it, it seems that they are going to be spared these judgments. It makes it a point to say several times uh, that, you know, even with the plague of darkness in uh, when God poured out uh, the judgment on Egypt, uh, the land of Egypt, there was darkness. But in the land of Goshen, where the Jew, Jewish people lived, there was light. So uh, I do believe these judgments are not the people of God, those who are uh, truly born again during this time. They're not going to be subject to these judgments. Um, but the unbelievers, the followers of Antichrist, will be. Then we, we looked at the sixth bowl, or we started to look at the sixth bowl last time. Let's read verse 12. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up. Let me just recap a little bit from last time. We began talking about this last week, but then we ran out of time. Okay, uh, But the Euphrates is the longest river in the Middle East. And uh, it really is the uh, life source of the um, uh, cradle of civilization, uh, the Fertile Crescent, where life began in the Middle East, Iraq, uh, you know, the area of Babylon and so on. And uh, as such, it has earned the title of Great River, not just... Uh, in the secular realm, but uh, in the Bible. The Bible calls it the great river in Genesis 15, 18, Deuteronomy 1, verse 7, Joshua 1, 4, if this is of interest to you. But, you know, the Bible calls it the great river. Now, the Romans considered the Euphrates River a secure border against invasion from the empires of the east. This river is 1,800 miles long, and depending on whether it's during flood stage or not, anywhere from 300 yards to 1,200 yards wide. Obviously, flood season, much wider, right? But the Romans considered a natural barrier uh, protecting them from the, uh, from the uh, kingdom, kingdoms of the east and so on. The source of the Euphrates River, and we're just recapping a little bit from last time. But the source of the Euphrates River, uh, River is the snow fields and ice caps high on Mount Ararat. Mount Ar There's two actually Mount Ararats, a greater Ararat and a, and a little Ararat. You can Google that and you'll see them. They're about seven miles apart. 
I'm talking about the big guy, okay? The big guy. Uh, Greater Ararat is about 17,000 feet above sea level, and it's located in modern Turkey. Now, as the sun is allowed to scorch the earth, it's going to melt all the ice and snow on Mount Ararat. And what that's going to do is going to cause massive runoff, flooding. It's going to rush down Mount Ararat, uh, Ararat, water like crazy. It's going to uh, overflow the Euphrates banks. Uh, For a while, there's going to be massive flooding. But then after all the ice and snow uh, over time now uh, is gone, evaporates and so on, then the Euphrates is going to begin to dwindle until it dries up, until it dries up. Now, we said last time there's an interesting um, result from this. As the snow and ice on Mount Ararat melts, it will leave, listen, Noah's Ark, completely visible and out in the open for the first time since the last time God judged the entire earth. He did that in those days, the days of Noah. He judged the whole earth with a flood. He promised he would never do that again, right? That's what the rainbow was all about. It was a promise, a covenant he made with the people of this world that he would never again destroy the world with a flood. Uh, You often need to read the fine print. The next time... God judges the world. It's not going to be with water. It's going to be with fire. And we directed you to 2 Peter 3, verses 3 to 7. We read how that uh, Peter talks about that. But um, one of my favorite Bible teachers, who was actually a mentor to me, when I first got saved, God directed me to Chuck Misler. And uh, I got a hold of a bunch of his, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm dating myself, cassette tapes. I didn't say eight tracks. I got a hold of a bunch of his cassette tapes, right? And I would just listen to Chuck all the time. Uh, In the car, uh, taking walks. I had my Walkman and everything. Um, Chuck, obviously a a very strong believer uh, with the Lord now, but uh, he was a naval graduate, all right? Uh, A Navy guy. And when he was teaching Genesis, years ago when I first heard him teach Genesis, And you came to the part where God had Noah and his sons build the ark, right? And at one point, they had to cover the ark with pitch. Pitch is a tar-like substance, petroleum-based, right? And um, God told Noah to to pitch the ark on the outside and on the inside. And Missler said, look, the only reason uh, I can come up with that God would have Noah pitch the ark, cover it with pitch on the outside and the inside. Usually just you do it on the outside for waterproof, right? God told Noah to do it both on the inside and outside. The only reason I could think that God would uh, tell Noah to do that is if he wanted to preserve the ark. Preserve the ark. And then he said, God has got future plans for this big boat, this ark, right? Now, I'm not saying they're going to take it down and use it again, okay? Uh, in fact, from uh, satellite imagery, uh, it looks like the ark at one point has sp- has broken in half and part of it slid down Ararat, but it's up there. In fact, uh, I saw an interesting um, documentary where the people that live in that area, they've all seen it. During very hot summers and mild winters, when the ice and snow melt enough, uh, the ark has been exposed many times. In fact, earlier in the uh, early in the 20th century, I believe an explorer whose name was Navarro, I think his name was Navarro, I'm doing this from memory, 
led an expedition and uh, found the ark, actually went on board and described what he saw, the three levels. And so he even brought little pieces of wood back, okay, petrified wood at this point. But it's up there. And I believe God is going to use it at one point during the tribulation period to remind people, as I have judged the world once already, I'm going to be judging it again. Get right. Get right. Quickly. Okay, before it's too late. Verse 12, once again. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and, the, and its water dried up, so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. Now, guys, don't confuse this army with the one mentioned in Revelation 9, verses 13 through 19. Because both passages mention the Euphrates River and armies, okay? Uh, Revelation 9 directly mentions armies, and then chapter 16, by inference, uh, because of this, many people claim that they're talking about the same event. However, the size of the army in Revelation 9 is placed at 200 million, whereas in Revelation 16, the, the size of the army is never mentioned. One of the big problems I have with the view that both passages are referring to the same event is that in Revelation 9, we see that judgment being unleashed during the sixth trumpet judgment, whereas the judgment in Revelation 16 is a judgment that will result when the sixth bowl is poured out. Not the same thing. As I said when we studied chapter 9, the sixth trumpet judgment, I believe, the army that comes forth uh, when that sixth trumpet judgment is, uh, is unleashed, uh, I believe will be an army of 200 million demons. Demons. Who are bound in or near the Euphrates River. There's a, a debate as to whether they're actually chained in the the Euphrates River, or near it. Who cares? Um, but at one point, God is going to release these demons uh, from their prison, whether it's in the Euphrates or near it. They're being held right now uh, in some kind of a prison uh, until the judgment of the great day, uh, that which is coming. Okay, But um, this demon army, and again, read chapter 9, uh, will unleash a horrific, judgment upon the earth whereas this judgment chapter 16 will be an invasion made up of a human army all right the sixth bowl is poured out uh, as the sixth bowl is poured out the river euphrates dries up preparing the way for the invading armies of the kings from the east we read that is from the nations which no doubt will include china but may also include India, Japan, or other Asian countries. We have seen in recent years that one of, the, one of these countries has risen to great prosperity and military power, and of course I'm talking about China. China. One author had this to say, he said, and I quote, the transformation of China from a backward agrarian economy to near superpower status. This was several years ago. All right, They're, They are a superpower. All right? Uh, they're knocking on our door. So you're going to go back about, I think the, I quoted this in 07, so you figure it out, okay? But the transformation of China from a backward agrarian economy to a near superpower status is equally amazing. We can, we can be virtually certain that these historical changes 
have been in preparation for the day of judgment that is coming at the end of this age, end quote. Why do they, why do they the kings of the east, why, why do they come? Why do they come? Is it to wipe out Israel? Could be. If that's true, then I believe Ezekiel 38 and 39 come into play. Keep that in mind. Hopefully we'll get to what I'm talking about before the night is over. Um, is it to rebel against the European-based uh, world leader we call the Antichrist? Could be. Okay. Um, what is it? Why do they come? We're not sure. We're not. The passage never tells us specifically. Ultimately, they're going to come and finally wind up doing battle against the Lord and against His Messiah. Psalm two. Read. You can read that. Okay. Uh, they may not. That may not be why they initially come into the area, uh, but that's going to wind up being one of the things that takes place. They're going to try to go to war against God's anointed. And God is terrified. He's really worried about that. He who sits in the heavens shall what? Laugh. How deceived do you have to be to think you can go to war against God and win? Now, hold on to that thought because there's a, a coming up a, a passage where Satan does something and you wonder, why, did, why is he going to go along with this? Hang on to that. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, but listen, understand that God drawing up the Euphrates is not an act of kindness toward the kings from the east, but one of judgment. Look, the kings of the east will have their own reasons for invading this area. And, you know, the world will find out eventually what they are. But little will they realize that they and their armies are going to be entering into a deadly trap. A trap set by God to judge these nations for their sins. I like what uh, Henry Morris, godly, uh, he was a scientist with the Lord now, but uh, I like what Henry Morris in his commentary uh, on this said. Uh, he said, and I quote, But there are great nations in the East as well, China, Japan, India, and many others. These are every bit as anti-Christian as the nations in other parts of the world. For ages they have been dominated by religions such as Buddhism, Confucianism, Hinduism, and others which are fundamentally, listen, evolutionary religions. That is, they all envision an eternal universe with no concept of a transcendent, omnipotent, personal God who created all things. Their emphasis is solely on present behavior. To them, history consists mostly of interminable cycles without beginning or ending. Associated with these pantheistic systems was and is, he says, always the worship of spirits. Whether these are understood as spirits of ancestors or as the spirits of trees or other natural, object, uh, natural objects, such worship is in reality the worship of demons or fallen angels. Such religions thus are also commonly associated with idolatry. These Eastern, thus Eastern religion, whatever specific form it may assume in a particular time or place, is essentially the same old worship of idols which God's prophets continually condemned in the Old Testament, end quote. So verse 13, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. 
For they are spirits of demons performing signs, which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. John tells us that these three unclean spirits are like frogs in form. Now, the Jews regarded frogs as unclean and repulsive, and I share that sentiment, okay? I'm not a frog guy, okay? Not a, not a frog guy. But the Egyptians revered and worshipped a frog goddess, all right? You remember that one of the plagues that God poured out upon Egypt was the plague of was uh, the plague of frogs. Those were literal frogs, literal frogs. In verse 14, these frogs are specified as spirits of demons. They're not literal frogs. They're like frogs, John said. He said they, they had an appearance, appearance like frogs. But guys, these wicked spirits will have the power to work miracles and manipulate the leaders of the earth to get them to come together for a final battle which is here described as the battle of that great day of God Almighty. So again, with demonic miracles, they deceive the nations to join with the Antichrist and false prophet in launching the final war of human history, what the Bible calls the battle of Armageddon. Turn to Joel chapter 3. I'm going to read to you just a couple of passages that I believe is talking about this final battle. The Battle of Armageddon. So Joel chapter 3, let's look at verse 2. Where God said, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. Verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble and come, all you nations. See, this is a world thing. This is not just a little local skirmish. We're talking about something on a worldwide scale. All right? uh, verse 11, Assemble and come, all you nations, and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for the wickedness is great. Sometimes these prophecies have a short-term partial fulfillment, but then the language scopes out at one point into a long-term ultimate fulfillment. So often what starts out as a local thing is a foreshadowing of something that's coming down the road that is on a much bigger scale, often a worldwide scale, especially as we come into that time just prior to Christ's return. But then Zechariah 14. If you want to turn to it, Zechariah 14, we'll just read verses 2 and 3. Of course, there are dozens we could look at. But in Zechariah 14, starting with verse 2, it says, For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half the city shall go into captivity. 
but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. There's going to be a remnant left. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. We'll have more to say about this when we get a little further into the study uh, about uh, Jerusalem and what I believe is in view here in Zechariah. But back in Revelation chapter 16. So again, look at verse 14. These uh, frog demons, okay, they are spirits of demons performing signs. The word there is a Greek word that means miracles, real miracles. Of course, Satan has the power to do real miracles, right? Um, so they are spirits of demons performing miracles which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Verse 15, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. You say, well, what is that doing right there in the middle of all this language of judgment? Well, one commentator said this, and I quote, This gracious word from heaven will come before the pouring out of the seventh bowl and assure believers that they will not be forgotten. It's getting bad. And, uh, you know, I mean, the world at this point is reeling from one cataclysmic, cataclysmic judgment to the next, right? And, uh, you know, uh, those believers during this time are wondering if it's all going to end with the earth being blown up or something, you know? Uh, Lord, have you forgotten about us? And so right here, the Lord, I believe the Lord Jesus Christ gives them a word of, of comfort, all right? A com word of comfort. Uh, it's kind of parallel to the beautiful passage in Malachi where the prophet addresses words of comfort from God to the righteous who were terrified, frightened by the approach of the horrible day of the Lord judgment. In Malachi 3, uh, verses 16 and 17, we read, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened. You know when you're talking to each other about the Lord, He's listening? He's listening. The Lord loves to hear His people talk about how wonderful He is, how much He is bless them and watches over them and protects them and so on, right? Um, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if my kids ever did this to me, but I mean, if I was eavesdropping on my little ones when they were little and they were talking about how great I was and dad's the best and, you know, he's the greatest dad in the whole world and so on, I, I like that. that. That would be something I would enjoy, okay? <laughs> and maybe they did. I don't know. I didn't catch it. But... Um, then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard, and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. They shall be mine. All those who belong to me and who love me and who are just talking to each other about, remember when the Lord did this? Oh, what? man, I just remember when the Lord came through this way. And, and God just writes it all down in a book. And uh, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels, and I will spare them from this judgment, as a man spares his own son who serves him. God told them not to be afraid, because they are his. They are his. And guys, God never forgets those who are his. Remember, we talked about Noah's Ark just a minute ago. Remember how that, you know, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. The fountains of the deep were broken up. The earth didn't get flooded from just 
water in the clouds, okay? The, the giant aquifers, these massive underground caverns that contain fresh water and all uh, were broken up, the fountains of the deep, right? And so Noah and his family were in the ark for about a year, all right? Uh, after the flood waters, it began to recede, but it took a long time for the waters to recede. And then you remember what it says. And God remembered Noah. Now you read that and go, Noah, did he forget? Of course not. God doesn't forget anything. When it says God remembered Noah, it's the Bible's way of saying, God said, it's time now for me to act. And that's when the waters began to really recede and the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat. And uh, Noah and his family uh, disembarked, and from those eight people, God repopulated the earth, right? Um, but God, God never forgets his own. I'm wondering if Noah in the ark, you know, maybe, you know, uh, the 10th or 11th month, okay, Lord, have you forgotten us? No, God never forgets. He's always got a time for everything he does, by the way. You're crying out to God, Lord, please deliver me out of this situation, whatever it might be, Lord. We, I need you to intervene. I, I need you to deliver me and my family, we'll say. And God's not answering. God's not answering. You. And the devil says, God's forgotten about you. That's not true. God never forgets those who belong to him. He never forgets anything. But especially when it says he never forgets his people. It means he, he will never not act at the, the appropriate time on our behalf, okay? Um, now, when the Lord likens his coming, I believe the Lord Jesus is talking, but when the Lord likens his coming to that of a thief, it's, it likens his coming to that of a thief. doesn't call the Lord a thief, okay? Let's get that straight, all right? But when the Lord likens his coming to that of a thief, it's because it describes how he is going to come, listen, suddenly, suddenly, and catch unbelievers off guard with God's judgment. Turn to 1 Thess Thessalonians 5. And uh, we'll pick it up in verse 2. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2, where Paul said, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. The day of the Lord is an eschatological term for this ultimate judgment that's coming. Eschatology is the study of end times or last things. All right, uh, The day of the Lord is often describing, not always in Scripture, but most of the time, describing uh, the ultimate judgment that will take place before Jesus Christ returns All right, uh, to set up his kingdom. And so, you know, Paul said, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when, and notice the pronouns, when they say, right, peace and safety, they would be a group other than Paul and who he hangs around with. So these are unbelievers, right? Unbelievers. When they, let's paraphrase, when the people of the world say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. God's judgment. But you... Now he changes, right? Talking now to believers. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. How is it that we as believers are not in darkness about what's coming? How do we protect ourselves from ignorance 
and from being surprised when the Lord comes and things to, for his church. How do, how do we do that? You know, what is it that we, we are not, Paul said, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. How do we stay out of darkness? How do we stay out of ignorance? How do we be vigilant and watchful for the Lord's coming? You have to know prophecy. And I keep beating that drum because a lot of churches won't go near prophecy anymore, or if they ever did. Because prophecy makes people uncomfortable. Prophecy is one of those things that people don't like to hear what's coming, right? They, they want to go on in blissful ignorance, you know, uh, totally, you know, um, oblivious to what is coming. Uh, you know, you teach prophecy from the Bible like we're doing tonight. Yeah, it makes some people uncomfortable. I'd rather make people uncomfortable, though, and inform them as to what is coming and the signs to look for that point to Jesus Christ soon return. And if the rapture, which is imminent, could happen at any time, is going to happen before Jesus' second coming, if the signs of his second coming are everywhere, because we have many prophecies about his, the signs of his second coming, if the signs of his second coming are everywhere, that means the rapture is getting very, very close. Even though we don't have any signs that point to that, again, it's imminent. It can happen at any moment. But there's a lot of Christians who go to churches that will not touch Bible prophecy. They won't go anywhere near the book of Revelation, but they just won't touch prophecy in general because it makes people uncomfortable and they're all about keeping people in the, in the pews, right? Making them happy. Tickling ears, unfortunately. Um, guys, let me just say this. I think that all Christians are waiting for Jesus' coming. But not all Christians are, listen, watching for Jesus' coming. Now, I've used this illustration before. Um, if um, I invited you over for dinner, and you said, I'm going to be there around 6 o'clock. Okay, I, my job, I, I can't pinpoint exactly. I'll be, I'll be there around 6 o'clock, right? So, okay, I, I got things. I'm waiting, I'm waiting, and while I'm waiting, I get busy, and I'm doing some things around the house, and you knock on the door. Your coming catches me by surprise, even though I knew in general you were coming tonight. But, you know, I didn't know, you know, I wasn't really prepared for the moment you arrived. If I'm watching for your coming, if I'm by the window, looking out the window, watching for your coming, I won't be taken by surprise. That's what prophecy is. That's what studying prophecy is all about. It's like looking out a window, looking for the coming, watching for the coming of Christ. And there's plenty of signs that point to his coming, that it's getting very near. But 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 6 and 7, Therefore, Paul said, let us not sleep. That's interesting. Let us, not them, he's talking to Christians now. Let, therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Unbelievers um, are not aware of, you know, it's amazing how as Christians and we, uh, you know, we're a church that really emphasizes Bible prophecy. Um, don't you, when you rub elbows with people at work or, you know, unbelievers, and how oblivious they are to the day we're living in, they, you know, it's like 
I remember reading a story about the Titanic, the ship that even God couldn't sink. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A lady was boarding instead of the purser. Is it true that this ship is unsinkable? They built it to be unsinkable. I saw a whole documentary on it, right? And uh, the purser, first officer, said, uh, Madam, even God himself couldn't sink this ship. Wow. Um, but because people had this false sense of security, they didn't take the warnings that, you know, that the ship had struck an iceberg. What happened was um, they saw the iceberg too late. If they would have hit it head on, they would have survived. But they quickly tried to turn to avoid it. You know anything about icebergs? What you see sticking out of the water is only 10% of what's underneath the water. And they're like, they're as hard as concrete or granite uh, icebergs, okay? So when they turned the ship to try to avoid it, they were never going to avoid this. Ice. It was too late. But by turning the ship, instead of hitting it head on, and the ship would have survived, they, 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 the, the ship went, you know, it hit the iceberg on the side and it ripped it open as the ship went down went alongside of it. A big gash was opened up. Uh, I can't remember if it was, a, if it, was the, it had a series of watertight compartments. And the idea was that if uh, up to four of these compartments were ruptured, the ship could still, you know, not, stay, not uh, sink. Well, this gash opened up five watertight compartments, and uh, that was that was it. But when it hit the iceberg, cry was going out. We got to evacuate, evacuate. Well, people had this false sense of security. The ship is never going to sink, right? And so, a lot of the lifeboats, and I wasn't planning on talking about this, but a lot of the lifeboats initially went out half full because people weren't getting on board. In fact, there was a band on the deck that was kept playing, and people kept dancing. They kept dancing like there, there was no danger at all. And it wasn't until the ship began to list to one side pretty dramatically that they realized they were in mortal danger. By that time, so many lifeboats had left half full, there wasn't enough to carry the rest of the people. Many perished because of their... Uh, their lack of vigilance and uh, taking seriously the situation they were in. Uh, I see that as, as kind of a metaphor for what's coming. The Antichrist is going to have people so deceived into thinking that he can even go to war against God and win that they don't believe that any talk of judgment is going to affect them. I mean, you've got God's people screaming about the judgments that are happening, and, and it's from God, get, repent, right? And they're just brushing it off. They don't believe that uh, God could really, um, you know, bring the whole world down. It's, uh, it's sad to, to think of what's going to happen. But, again, in First Thessalonians 5, Paul said, look, um, just because you're a child of God doesn't mean you can't fall asleep in the light. You know, there's a, a lot of Christians who are asleep in the light. That just means they're not vigilant. They're not really on top of what's going on in the world. I heard one person say when we talked to him about the coming of Christ, he said, oh, yeah, I believe. You know, a guy was supposedly a Christian. I, I believe. 
Jesus coming maybe a thousand years down the road. See, that's that's ignorance because, you know, nobody's, God never promised it would be a thousand seconds from right now. I mean, it, it could happen any time. I'm talking about the rapture and then, of course, the events that take place after that. But, um, again, the implication is that just because we are believers in Jesus Christ doesn't mean we can't fall asleep in the light. In fact, Paul goes on to tell us in Romans 13 that many have, in fact, fallen asleep uh, in uh, in their relationship with God in these, you know, in, in his day even, but uh, even today much more so, that uh, many have gone to sleep in their relationship with God and are no, no longer being vigilant and, and uh, looking for Jesus' return. Now, he, he tries to wake them up. This is interesting. In Romans 13, verses 11 and 12, he says, And do this, knowing the time, that it is uh, high time to awake out of sleep. For our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the night of man's rebellion. Uh, the day is at hand, the day of Christ's return in the, new, in the kingdom age. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. It's time to get serious. I, I'm just saddened by how many churches are pandering to a, uh, well, again, they're tickling ears, telling people what they want to hear, not what they need to hear, what they want to hear. Because, again, they want to build big churches. They want the money to keep flowing into the church coffers. Um, and really, um, it's it's so much about laying up for themselves treasures on earth for a lot of these churches um, that their people are uh, are not uh, informed about what's coming and all the signs that are pointing to. Uh, I was I think I told you guys back in ninety six nineteen ninety six I know it was ninety six because the Olympics were going on in Atlanta okay and. Um, so we, we drove, okay, to uh, Disney World, all right, with the kids. And they were little, and we drove to Disney World. And, you know, you leave from Chicago going to Orlando, Florida, to Disney World. I didn't see a sign for Disney, <laughs> for Disney World for hundreds of miles. I think it's, I don't know, it was 1,350 miles from Chicago to Orlando. Don't check me on that. I'm, I'm thinking around there, maybe 1,500. I didn't see one sign for Disney World for hundreds and hundreds of miles. Then all of a sudden I saw one. And then, you know, a long stretch, and then maybe another one, right? When we were about 100 miles away from Disney World, I'm not kidding you, those signs were right on top of each other. I mean, they were boom, 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 right? right? It was amazing. And so you got to Disney World, your destination. Well, you know, for many years, the signs of Jesus' return were very far apart, okay? But today, they're coming right one after the other. I mean, you know, ever since Israel became a nation in 48, ever since we entered into the, um, uh, the technology that allows global communications and different computer aids, you can't have everyone taking a mark. And, uh, and, and all uh, without computers keeping track of everybody and so on, right? There was a lot of reasons why the world was not ready for the Lord's return yet. But now you can't pick up a, a paper without, or if you get your news online, you can't turn on the news without seeing another prophecy being fulfilled. 
It's amazing. Now, verse 15. So Jesus said, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches, okay, be vigilant, and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. What in the world? What does the Lord mean by this? Well, Alfred Erdesheim, I think, shed some light on this phrase. Alfred Erdesheim was a Jewish convert to Christianity and a great Bible scholar, he went on to be. He's known in particular for his work, incredible work, known as The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. And you can get that in print. I'm sure it's still in print. Or you can maybe even download a copy for free. Uh, it might be public domain by this time. But um, uh, Erdesheim died in March of 1889, so he was going back a ways, right? But, uh, but um, as I said, he sheds some light on this phrase by explaining that the captain of the temple made his rounds during the night to see if the guards were awake and alert. So periodically the captain would make his rounds to make sure all the guards were awake and alert, right? Um, if one was found asleep, he was either beaten or his garments were set on fire while the guy was asleep. No doubt where the term rude awakening came from. I don't know, but it sounds like it fits. <laughs> Other commentators take a slightly different view of this. Uh, other commentators have said that if a soldier was found sleeping, now the idea was that he didn't just fall asleep. He, you know, you could you could be trying to stay awake, fall asleep, and you know how that goes. You 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 don't want to sleep, but you do. But then you had these guys who took off their armor. Nothing's going to happen tonight. Never happened. Nothing ever happened. Took off their armor, you know. Uh, took off their outer garment. Uh, they weren't naked per se, but for a soldier, pretty close. They just got wearing their skivvies, we would say, you know, uh, the long johns maybe, you know. But but they 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 uh, their 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 street clothes, uh, you know, of course, which included their armor. They're soldiers, right? Um, so if, you know, if they were found to be, you know, in that condition. Their clothes and their armor were uh, taken from them and possibly burned. There's some variations of that. And they were forced to walk around, quote-unquote, naked so that others could see their shame, the shame of a soldier derelict in his duty. Now, how does this apply to believers that are going to be living at this time? Well, uh, those one author says, those whom God has clothed with the garments of salvation, and wrapped with a robe of righteousness, Isaiah 61, verse 10, who have put on Jesus Christ, Romans 13, 14, will be ready. He's talking about believers, right? These are all talking about believers. They're going to be ready when Jesus Christ returns. They're going to be looking for His coming because they know the signs. These tribulation saints, believe me, they're all going to be scholars of the book of Revelation. It's going to be the book to study during the tribulation period, right? And they are going to know what's coming uh, from the book of Revelation, and they're going to know when Jesus Christ is getting, uh, his coming is near, and uh, that when he returns, that he is going to bring judgment. That's what Revelation 19 is all about, right? You can, you can read ahead and check that out. But the idea is that those who are caught 
unaware, those who are caught, you know, uh, you know, basically sleeping. I think that really is a reference to unbelievers primarily. Uh, they're sleeping in the sense that they they are not at all aware of what's happening. They're uh, blissful, blissfully ignorant. Okay, um, could there be any believers during the tribulation period that are kind of asleep in the light? I doubt that. I seriously doubt that. I could be wrong. Doesn't sound like a time where you would nod off. Okay. I mean, these folks are going to be really plugged in, okay? Um, but anyway, verse 16. So uh, let me back to verse 15. So behold, I am coming as a thief. Behold, uh, blessed is he who watches and keeps his garment uh, garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Verse 16, 16 and they gathered them together. To the place called in the in Hebrew, Armageddon, gathered who together, the demons that went out and were able to gather the kings of the earth, to go to war. Okay, are they coming against Israel? Could be. Okay, are they coming to do battle with Messiah when he returns? That could be too. Maybe a little of both. Right. The word Armageddon comes from two Hebrew words, Har. Megiddo. Har is the Hebrew word that means hill or mount. Megiddo means place of troops or place of slaughter. Um, it's also called the plain of Esdralon and the valley of Jezreel. They're all this different names for this uh, large area, this large area. Uh, the valley of Megiddo is a valley that's about 10 miles uh, wide and 35 miles long. Think about this. Now, I have stood several times on top of Mount Carmel. If you've been to Israel, you've done this too. I have stood on top of Mount Carmel overlooking the Valley of Megiddo. It is quite a sight. In fact, Napoleon, who was no stranger to warfare, called it the most natural battlefield of the entire earth. A lot of battles have been have taken place in this area. Of course, there's one coming that will be the battle of all battles, the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, Armageddon. But um, if you ever see this, you can go online and, and Google it and look at it. It's incredible. I mean, it is a, an absolute ideal plane for warfare. In fact, it was on this plane that Barak defeated the armies of Canaan in uh, Judges 5.19. It's in this very place where Gideon met the Midianites uh, in battle in, in Judges uh, chapter 7. Uh, King Saul lost his life in this area, uh, 1 Samuel 31. Titus and the Roman army used this natural corridor, as did the Crusaders in the Middle Ages. It was a natural corridor also. Okay, battles were fought right there, but it was also a perfect a uh, place to march from one place to another. And so Titus uh, and the Roman army used it. So did the Crusaders in the Middle Ages. I'll give you one more. Uh, British General, General Allenby used it when he defeated the Turkish armies in 1917. Now, guys, from a human standpoint, we're going to have to bring this to a close, but from a human standpoint, it appears that the armies of the nations are gathering on their own terms. I mean, they're, they're gathering for whatever purposes they have in mind. Okay, 
But John makes it clear that the military movement uh, is all according to God's plan. So why these nations are gathering to defeat Israel, to go to war against Messiah, uh, to go to war against Antichrist, I don't think that's it. But not everybody loves this guy, by the way. I mean, they try to, somebody tries to assassinate him, and we've talked about that, okay. Uh, but he survives, but, um, you know, but I, I, I don't think that we're talking about uh, those who would go to war against the Antichrist. I believe that they are gathering in the Valley of Megiddo, drawn there by these demons. You know, you got the satanic trinity, uh, the, uh, the, the devil, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, and a frog, this frog demon comes out of each one of them, and then it, they go around the entire earth gathering the kings of the earth into this one place for one final ultimate battle. At least that's what they think is going to go on. They're going to go to war against God and win. Not going to happen. Um, so whatever reason they've got in their heads while they're gathering, God's drawing them. It's like when God talks about, um, and we don't have time to get into it today. Um, I believe this could be uh, a battle against Israel. And it's interesting how that God talks about in Ezekiel 38 and 9, how at one point he's going to put a hook in Russia's jaw. It's interesting language. Uh, almost like Russia doesn't really want to get involved, but they really have no choice in some way. God puts a hook in Russia's mouth. And it's not just Russia. It's Russia, Iran, Egypt, other Muslim countries, which is, that's interesting. In Ezekiel 38, it talks about this confederacy that goes against Israel. And uh, it's, it's pretty much a confederacy of Muslim nations. Well, who hates Israel more than mo the Muslims do? So that's interesting. I wanted to get into it tonight. We won't have time. But um, this is all according to God's plan. You know, I mean, God makes even the wrath of man to praise him, right? In other words, uh, man, you know, can do his thing and think he's fighting against God, but it's all working according to God's program. If you doubt that, you can read Revelation 17, verse 17, which talks about this is all in part involved in the um, plan of God, okay? Let me just end with this. The question is, why does Satan, I, I, went, I threw that out earlier, let me just end with this, okay? And then we'll, next week we'll take up the seventh bowl. Um, why does Satan go along with this? Why does that, Somebody asked me just recently, um, do you think that Satan thinks he can really defeat God? Now, that's an interesting thought to ponder. Because he's going along with this whole thing. They're gathering to go to war against God. That's the ultimate reason they're, they're going to be there. <laughs> um, do I think Satan thinks he can defeat God? Well, I, I, I don't know. He's an extremely brilliant creature. A lot smarter than any one of us by far, Right? But just because you're very intelligent doesn't mean you also can't be very deceived. I kind of think that Satan thinks he can go to war against God and win. I really do. He said, well, that's ridiculous. Of course it is. 
How could he believe that? I don't know. We're talking about a guy that does not have a small ego, by the way. I mean, you know, you talk about a narcissist, that doesn't even begin to describe Lucifer. You know, people that are that self-deceived. Think of narcissists um, and what they buy into. It's like they, they, nobody can ever vanquish them. They, nobody can ever defeat them. They're so full of themselves, right? And if I had to make a guess, I would say that Lucifer is one of those creatures who is so taken with his own abilities and, and, and intelligence that I think he believes he can actually go to war against God and win. And I believe he's orchestrating this whole thing because in his mind, this is how I'm going to keep Messiah from coming back. I'm going to defeat him, and then I'll stay in power, you know, on the earth. It'll be my kingdom, and so on. One commentator said, the Gentile nations will look on Armageddon as a battle, but to God it will only be a supper for the fowls of the air. Revelation 19, verses 17 to 21. Um, and the outcome of this battle, quote-unquote, is not much of a fight, is it? But the outcome of this battle is recorded in Revelation 19 when the Lord comes back and doesn't even... He doesn't even raise a sword, in a sense. He speaks, there's a sword coming out of his mouth, allegorically. In other words, he speaks the word, and they're vaporized. They're vaporized. And so we will look at the seventh bowl. Uh, well, well, we'll get through chapter 16 next time. And then begin to get into, probably get into chapter 17, which is very interesting uh, for a lot of reasons, and we'll look at some of those uh, next time father we thank you lord for well for loving us for coming down to die for us lord and now for putting your spirit within us the moment we received you and the holy spirit is the spirit of truth he's the spirit of light he guides and leads our lives in the right paths as we study the word and know what your word has said and Lord, we just pray that you would uh, give us a voracious hunger for your word. That we can't help ourselves but feed on it constantly. That we be prepared, we be equipped, that we be vigilant and watchful for your return. It's coming soon. So we thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.